Want to binge on UFOs, ghosts, true crime, and super gross events in world history? Then Strangeful Things is the show for you. We bring you a new story every week and make sure there are as many laughs as there are horrified shudders. Strangeful Things, where we make things you didn't want to know fun to learn. always lurks at the bottom of the magical world, and everything holy is always mixed with horror. Ernst Skirtle, Magic, History, Theory, and Practice. This book was discovered among Adolf Hitler's personal belongings and the above passage underlined. Berlin, Germany, 1945. Let's just pick it up where we last left off. It's 1945 and the Nazis aren't doing so hot, which is great news for everybody else, right? Hitler is freaking out and lashing out on his inner circle, as it's quite clear that the Allies are closing in. Heinrich Himmler, who is totally the star-screamed Hitler's Megatron, let's be real, knows his goose is cooked if he doesn't start to hustle. All of this research and funding starts to pour in to all manner of last-minute superweapons, which in the long run don't do much other than fuel a bunch of conspiracy theories for a standard programming block on the History Channel. To recap, Heinrich Himmler was one weird dude, who firmly believed in spiritualism and magic, and that harnessing the forces of the supernatural would be instrumental to the war effort. Also, not the biggest fan of the Jews. Hitler tolerated him, mostly because he was good at being bad, And also because, I mean, don't we all have that friend who's always trying to give us a tarot card reading or offering to do our astrological chart or advocating ethnic cleansing? Thing is, Himmler's penchant for magical weaponry may have doomed the Third Reich way early on in the game. If you believe in the power of a certain holy curse, that is. Before Himmler turned his eyes towards acquiring the Holy Grail, the Nazis managed to get their hands on one of the other famous relics associated with the crucifixion. The year, according to the Bible, is roughly 33 AD. So there was this religious figure named Jesus Christ. You may have heard of him. And depending on who you ask, he was either a miracle worker, a prophet, the son of God, the Messiah, a really forward-thinking philosopher, or half-human, half-divine. We're not going to get into the historical certification of Christ because that's not my gig and I don't have the credentials. But the long and the short of it is that after years of preaching radical compassion, respect, love, and healing the spiritually and physically wounded, Jesus Christ caught the wrath of the Romans, who saw him as a rabble-rouser and a nuisance. The fact is, when your whole platform is the emancipation of the oppressed, you're bound to make the powers in charge very angry. As the gospel goes, Jesus pretty much knew what was going to happen to him once he reached Jerusalem. And even worse, he knew that one of his own men would betray him to the Roman police. He gathered his apostles for one final supper, a last supper if you will, and raised his goblet telling them to remember the sacrament. According to belief, the cup he drank from was what was simply available at the inn or banquet hall, but this goblet would later pass on to infamy as the Holy Grail. More on that later. The foretold betrayal did come to pass. One of Jesus' closest friends, Judas Iscariot, sold him out for several pieces of silver before being driven to guilt and hanging himself. 
It fell upon the local prefect, essentially the governor of the Roman territories, to carry out the trial of Jesus. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Jesus' home base, and as the prefect, Pilate served under the Roman emperor Tiberius. Pilate was allegedly not that sympathetic to Jews, so probably would have gotten along just fine with Hitler, and according to various sources, he was somewhat of a coward. It is said that when Jesus was brought before Pilate, the prefect deemed him innocent of all his crimes, but was easily pressured by everyone else who saw Jesus Christ as a direct threat to the state. So Pilate literally washed his hands of the situation and sentenced Christ to easily one of the worst deaths ever conceived, crucifixion. Basically, it's nailing someone to a post by their appendages and exposing them to elements until they died. Not a good way to go. There's a lot of information about the crucifixion out there. There's a whole book I can refer you to if you want to know more about that. But this is where the second of the two lost crucifixion relics comes into play. There is some debate and gospel divergence over what happened to Jesus as he lay dying on the cross. In one account, the Roman soldiers take pity on Jesus and go to break his legs in order to hasten his death. But finding him unresponsive, an unnamed Roman soldier pierces his side to make sure he is actually dead. Out of the puncture wound flows both blood and water, which symbolizes Christ's divine origins. In traditional scripture, this is where any discussion of the spear ends. In fact, you would have to look to apocryphal literature for even the very mention of the fabled Lance of Longinus, also known by its very ominous names, the Holy Lance or the Spear of Destiny. To put apocryphal liturgy into modern context, it's kind of like the Star Wars expanded universe to the three cinematic trilogies. Basically, it's non-canonical. In the Gospel of Nicodemus, the Roman soldier who carried out the act of spearing Jesus was a Roman centurion named Longinus, and he did so not to see if Jesus was dead, but to actually hasten his death as the soldier took pity on Christ's suffering. This name, Longinus, is corroborated by a miniature sculpture housed in the Laurentian Library in Florence, which is one of the oldest sources for the etymology of this religious figure, dating back to 586 Common Era. There are further accounts that attest to Longinus's piety and act of mercy. Some say that after witnessing the crucifixion, Longinus had a spiritual awakening and proclaimed Christ as the Son of God. The Catholic Church even goes so far as to venerate him as a saint who supposedly converted to Christianity shortly after, marking Longinus as one of the earliest evangelists during the fledgling days of the Church. Still, in other accounts, the act of piercing Jesus marks Longinus to be damned to a lion's den where he is forever torn to pieces and regenerated until the end of time. Guess it all depends on who you ask. As with all things post-crucifixion, this is where things start to get fuzzy. Nobody knows for sure what happens to the spear. Some say Longinus held onto it as a powerful artifact, as the blood from its tip helped restore his poor eyesight. There are no traces of the spear until the artifact, or a artifact that sounds a lot like it anyway, is identified in Jerusalem around the 6th century, but without the name of Longinus attached to it. There is also much speculation over what happened to Longinus's remains, which were repeatedly lost over the years. In 1304, they reappear, along with the spear, in Mantua, Italy. Shakespeare nerds might recognize this name as the place where Romeo was exiled to in Romeo and Juliet. Here is where the trinity of relics, in Christianity, always a trinity, starts to become introduced in popular non-canonical lore. There is the spear, of course, along with the Holy Grail, and lastly there is the Shroud of Turin. 
This is the burial cloth that covered Jesus after his interment in the cave, and it is said to have captured an image of his body and face, supposedly burned into the fabric as he ascended into heaven. This latter relic is a big deal, mostly because it's not actually lost, and you can visit it to this day in the Cathedral of John the Baptist in Turin. It is a controversial artifact, to say the least. Carbon dating marks the material of the cloth to somewhere around the 1200s to 1300s, which would put it far out of the date range of the crucifixion. But nobody can quite explain the eerie image or imprint, which is far too distinct to be what we call pareidolia, or the mind perceiving a familiar pattern, such as a face where none exists. Since there is no evidence of any sort of pigment being used on the cloth, some fringe believers say that it was a fabrication utilizing a hitherto lost form of medieval photography, which definitely presents us with more questions than answers. The Catholic Church has never issued a formal consensus, though even as far back as the 1300s, some called it a hoax, and its existence continues to puzzle those on either side of the scientific or religious spectrum which is probably how Jesus would have wanted it, to be honest. Anyways, you didn't tune in for found relics, but lost ones. It's kind of the title of the podcast. (laughs) While the corpse of Longinus was said to have ended up somewhere in Prague, there are multiple answers for what happened to the spear. In 615, Jerusalem fell to the Persians, and as one might expect, a lot of legendary artifacts went missing during this time, including the original menorah of the tabernacle. Callback! The warrior Nicetus managed to break off the spear tip or blade and fled to Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, where he hid the artifact in the famous Hagia Sophia church, and then later the church of the Virgin of the Pharos. Emperor Baldwin II, the last of the Latin emperors, had set it into an enshrined icon somewhere in the early 1200s, before giving it to Louis IX of France, who I should point out is also recognized as a Catholic saint. The point of the lance was enshrined in a crown of thorns in the Saint's Chapel of Paris, and it remained there for hundreds of years, until the French Revolution, that is, when it suddenly went missing, along with the heads of several French aristocrats. So that's version one, mysterious and sexy, just like the French. Version two is that it's under the dome of St. Peter's Basilica, the most famous rotunda in the world, smack dab in the Vatican City. The only real evidence to support this being the spear tip is a statue of Longinus that rests above the enshrined relic. As for how it got there in the first place, it was in Jerusalem, as mentioned before, and then moved to Constantinople where it was captured by the Turks in 1492. The Sultan Bayezid II gave it to Pope Innocent VIII as an incentive to keep his brother and rival for the Turkish throne, Zizim, prisoner. You remember those crusades, right? But even at the time, this gift raised eyebrows among the papal court, as most thought that the real spearhead was supposed to be in Paris. Around the 1700s, Pope Benedict XIV decided to do some research into the subject and visited the French artifact to see which one was authentic. After examining the Parisian spear, Benedict concluded that the tips had once actually been separated and formed a whole, and that everyone was a winner in this situation. Version 3 of the fate of the Lance of Longinus, and the one most pertinent to the story, is that the spear was housed in the imperial treasury in Hofburg Palace, Vienna, but it took a long time for it to end up there. This spear had been bestowed to King Boleslav I of Poland from Otto I, the 8th century Holy Roman Emperor. 
We aren't quite sure how it first appeared. Some say crusades, some say sackings of Jerusalem, but it was initially mistaken for the nail of the cross that had pierced Jesus, and not the actual spear tip. It was then used in coronation ceremonies for various royals and heads of state, and moved around between Poland, Germany, and Austria as the power shifted. This may be where the legend of the spear's power, or curse, came to fruition. It stands to reason that anybody with the name Holy in their title would probably covet an artifact associated with Christ, but more than that, these Holy Roman Emperors would definitely want to tap into its sacred power. Thus, legend has it that whomever held the spear would conquer any army that stood against them. But as with all forms of great magic, this promise came with a hefty price tag. These victories would not be permanent and the spear wielder would inevitably suffer a great loss, either their empire, their life, but in most cases, both. From a purely historical perspective, this appears to be so, as the spear changed hands often during the constantly fluctuating rule of the Holy Roman Emperors. Eventually, the lance was acquired by Emperor Sigismund of Luxembourg, who had the spearhead and other religious artifacts moved to his hometown of Nuremberg for safekeeping, as he was elbows deep in wars at the time. There, the artifacts remained until the end of the 1700s, when the French Revolution showed up on Germany's doorstep and promptly freaked everybody out. The Council of Nuremberg had the relics moved to Vienna under the eye of Baron von Hugel, who promised to give it over once the French decided to chill out. But if you know anything about the French, it is that they have no chill. Even more awkward, the Holy Roman Empire, which had a very good run of almost a thousand years, finally collapsed in 1806. The surviving Habsburg royal family shrugged and said, well, at least we still got all that Austria, and they retained the spear. But not for long, cause that's when the Nazis came marching in. In 1938, Hitler finally came home to Austria and promptly annexed it. In the process, he looted the Habsburg treasury and had the spear moved to Nuremberg, where it had previously existed for hundreds of years. Despite so much lore and mythology surrounding the spear, as well as its ability to bestow victory to whoever held it in its grasp, Hitler did not actually believe the spear would grant him powers untold. This acquisition was more of a symbolic gesture. Now Himmler, of course, was probably pleased as punch. Regardless, this act cemented the Nazis' belief that the Third Reich would prove to be the successor state to the Holy Roman Empire. And of course, that didn't work out because the Nazis were defeated less than a decade later. Cursed or no, Hitler and his so-called empire collapsed most spectacularly. When the Allies rolled into Berlin, General George S. Patton acquired the spear briefly and sent it back to Vienna, where it can still be viewed on display at the Weltisches Schatzkammer Museum. And if you thought Patton managed to get off scot-free for even momentarily acquiring the spear, not so. Though we Americans remember George Patton as a World War II hero, he had gotten to some major hot water when he'd confronted two soldiers under his command suffering from PTSD and slapped the guy silly. Even this was too much for then-General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who severely reprimanded Patton for his bad attitude. Though this incident took place shortly before the invasion of Berlin, Patton nevertheless found himself knocked down a few ranks by the eventual close of the war. Now, you may be asking yourself, was this artifact the real Spear of Destiny, or what? 
In 2003, a British metallurgist by the name of Robert Feather was given special access to conduct experiments on the spearhead in hopes of dating it. And I don't mean like in the romantic sense, but like in the historical sense. To everyone's disappointment, he found that the spear was most likely forged in the 7th century AD. But this did not explain one of the nails that was embedded inside the blade tip. That, Feather concluded, was remarkably consistent with the length and shape of first century Roman nails. Ah, delicious ambiguity. So wrapping up the Spear of Destiny, we're just going to pause here to debunk a few myths surrounding Hitler's occult aspirations. As we've learned, historically speaking, there was a foundation for Nazi occultism, but most of that rested with Heinrich Himmler. Pop culture, however, likes to magnify these tales, which often pits Hitler and his inner circle against some plucky treasure hunters racing against time to acquire one of the many artifacts of renown, usually the Spear of Destiny, the Holy Grail, or, most famously, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the grandfather of this trope was a quirky gentleman named Trevor Ravenscroft. Yes, that was his real name. Ravenscroft was a British POW from the North Africa campaign during World War II. He became a journalist under the guidance of one Lord Beaverbrook, seriously not making up these names, guys, who is one of the founders of British sensational journalism, such as the Daily Mirror and the Sun, etc. Ravencroft's main claim to fame is that he was a friend of the German occult writer Walter Johannes Stein, who died in 1957. Ravenscroft said that Stein had given him all manner of secret texts, notes, and chronicles that pertained to Hitler's mystical ambitions. Ravenscroft also claimed that Hitler's rise to power and eventual downfall could both be chalked up to the curse of the spear. The problem with this theory, my friends, is that it was a total fabrication, cooked up by Ravenscroft, who, in actuality, had maybe only met Stein in passing and was certainly not buddy-buddy. Stein, to his credit, had published a book on the Holy Grail in 1928, but never really dwelt on the Spear of Destiny or its alleged powers. In short, Ravenscroft, as well as authors Louis Pavels and Jacques Berger, are who we must credit with the more exaggerated accounts of Nazi occultism. The latter two gentlemen helped to revolutionize spooky Nazi conspiracies with their infamous 1960 work, Les Matins des Magicians, or The Morning of the Magicians, which introduced conspiracy theory, the prophecies of Nostradamus, alchemy, ley lines, and other fringe beliefs into the modern consciousness. You'd think this would be the final blow to that Nazis being secretly warlocks theory, right? Well, there is still one final thread to untangle. Heinrich Himmler and his obsession for that other lost crucifixion relic, and arguably the holy grail of lost treasures, the holy grail. Now that Hitler did have somewhat of an interest in, mostly because he was a huge fanboy of one German opera auteur named Richard Wagner, composer of the epic The Ring Cycle, that's the one with Flight of the Valkyries, and the opera Parsifal. Wagner was also a huge anti-Semite, which basically made him the perfect role model for young Adolf. Parsifal is a name that might ring especially familiar to anybody with a remote awareness of pop culture, as the name was most recently used for the avatar of the main character in Ready Player One. 
Sasha. Hey, Courtney. Where can you get hot takes about ghosts, cryptids, farts, and cats? I don't know. Where? On our podcast, Spoop Hour. Oh, that's right. Each week, we talk about the things that spook us out, and we laugh through our fear. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Spoop Hour, and you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, or really anywhere else that you get your podcasts. Feel free to also drop us a line at spoophour at gmail.com. We want to hear about your ghosts. Thanks. Before we jump into this big one, let's back it up all the way back to the Last Supper. Once again, you will not find any real mention of the Holy Grail, other than that albeit important passage about Jesus holding up a cup of salvation, in the New Testament. The first mention of the Holy Grail actually comes way before Wagner's opera, in an adaptation of an ancient poem called Percival, the Story of the Grail, by Christian de Troyes, which can be dated back to around 1180, and is considered one of the great works inspired by Arthurian lore. Back in those days, tales of King Arthur were kind of like the fan fiction of their time. Actually, a better analogy would be that King Arthur's stories were kind of like this Marvel Cinematic Universe. Some tales focused solely on particular Knights of the Round Table, and other tales involved more widely recognized crossovers and team-ups. Percival happened to be one of those knights, and his solo outing is the tale from which all Grail stories derive. It's basically your typical origin story. Percival slash Parsifal slash Parzifal, what have you, is a boy being raised in the remote Welsh countryside who dreams of growing up to become a knight. He decides to hoof it over to King Arthur's court and try out for Knights of the Round Table auditions or whatever. Sir Kay belittles him until Percival assassinates one of King Arthur's enemies. Arthur is like, I like your spunk, kid, and boom, Percival joins the Avengers. Percival goes off on a few adventures, rescues one of the Round Table Knight's nieces, marries her, saves the day countless times, whatever. But the juicy stuff takes place on his way home to visit his mother, when our man Big P finds himself in the middle of a blighted, ruined kingdom. He comes upon an elderly, disabled lord, known as the Fisher King, for reasons that are about to become obvious, who spends his days catching fish in a boat on the lake. Despite his condition, he invites Percival to stay in his creepy castle. While eating dinner, the king calls forth a bizarre processional ritual. It's very Rocky Horror Picture Show, but less music and less cameos by Meatloaf. This mostly consists of young boys and girls parading around the room with significantly valuable-looking treasures, of which appear to be somewhat religious in nature. A young man enters the strange parade, wielding a spear or lance that drips an endless stream of blood. And why Percival doesn't hightail out of the castle at this point kind of confused me when I read this, but hey, I guess he's a knight. Lastly, a beautiful woman appears, and in her hand is an intricately decorated grail. Despite the unusual ceremony, Percival keeps his mouth shut throughout all of this, mostly because all that's hella weird, and also because he's also been taught this chivalrous etiquette of not talking too much at dinner. Which turns out, was the wrong thing to do. As soon as Percival makes it back to King Arthur's court, a spooky lady suddenly shows up in a puff of smoke and tells him that if he had only said the magic words, then the grail would have healed the wounded king and restored the ruined kingdom. Whoops. There's a couple of unrelated side quests before the poem just kind of ends abruptly, and everyone in the 21st century is scratching their heads, wondering how all of this inspired Hitler to try and conquer Europe. Let's break this down. First, what we think of as a grail, 
i.e. a fancy cup, is probably incorrect and is a byproduct of cultural programming. A medieval goblet-style grail popping up in biblical times would be the equivalent of swapping out a sundial for an analog clock. The real grail would most likely be a flat piece of crockery, such as a dish, specifically the type of dish where you'd lay communion wafers. Some think that if Percival spoke the right words, then maybe this dish would have pulled up with an elixir or water that would miraculously heal the Fisher King. And just who was that guy anyway? Well, this is a source of much debate. But the theory is that the Fisher King was the last in a long lineage of knights entrusted to guard the Spear of Destiny and the Holy Grail. Other authors who put their own spin on this legend interpreted the Grail as the Philosopher's Stone of alchemic fame, said to transmute base metals to gold and bestow the elixir of everlasting life. The author Robert de Boron's account is similar to Detroit's, but provides more of a backstory for how the Grail and Spear first ended up in the Fisher King's castle. According to this version, we have Joseph of Arimathea to thank for the acquisition and protection of the holy relics. For those who need a primer, Joseph of Arimathea is often considered Christ's secret disciple, his man on the inside, as it were. Joseph was a wealthy noble who liked what Jesus had to say and interceded with Pontius Pilate after the crucifixion to help tend to and care for Christ's body. In Grail mythology, Joseph collected the blood of Christ inside the cup, which imbued the vessel with the power of rejuvenation and the ability to grant whomever drank from it eternal life. After a brief stint in prison, Joseph received a spiritual message from Jesus telling him to take the grail and protect it. Joseph fled Jerusalem with an entourage of in-laws and other volunteers and headed west to Europe. Jesus told Joseph that he would know when they could finally set up shop by what happened when Joseph struck the ground with his walking staff. The journey to the west was arduous and long, and it wasn't until Joseph reached Albion, or ancient Britain, that he finally struck the earth and watched miraculously as his wooden stick immediately sprouted roots. At long last, he knew this was the place. And that place, if the legends are true, is Glastonbury Tor or Glastonbury Hill, an ancient mound near the modern town of Somerset that is steeped in mysticism and myth. To some, this mound was the entryway to the magical land of Avalon, which featured heavily in the Arthurian canon. Older tales spoke of the mound being the gateway to the realm of the fairies, ruled over by their king, or even the entrance to the underworld. Today, New Ages believe Glastonbury to be one of seven spiritual nexuses on the planet, which each correspond to one of the chakras. Glastonbury is considered the power nexus of love and emotion, which is often symbolized in esoteric belief by an overflowing cup. For example, the tarot card of the Ace of Cups is a representation of the Holy Grail, the primal element of water, and a metaphor for Christ's love for humanity. It's easy to see why Glastonbury is a good candidate for the resting place of the Grail. For one, it's a giant mysterious hill in the shape of a labyrinth, there's an imposing medieval tower at the top, and at the bottom of the mound is a spring called the Chalice Well. This natural spring percolates a red-colored potable water, metaphorically blood, scientifically iron, which is rumored to grant restorative properties to anybody who drinks it. In any case, this was the place where Joseph first began the lineage of guardians that ended with the Fisher King, who then, according to de Baron, passed on the grail to Percival himself. It's a fantastic story, but it carries no biblical weight. 
Historians now think that the myth came from oral Celtic folktales surrounding a figure named Bran the Blessed, who is not a Game of Thrones character, believe it or not, but a giant, and the original King of Britain. Bran features heavily in epic cycles such as the Wealth Mab and Ogeon. Bran was known for his magical cauldron that could grant both healing and immortality to anybody who drank its contents, and this, and not anything to do with Christ, was said to have been the initial far more pagan inspiration for the first Grail legends. Unfortunately, nobody told the Germans about this, and certainly not Richard Wagner, who was obsessed with pagan mythology. He began writing his operatic adaptation of Percival, giving it the decidedly more German translation of Parzifal, in 1857, but did not actually get around to completing the work until almost 25 years later. Wagner attests divine inspiration for the opera, which he conceived of on a medical retreat in the resort town of Mariandad. While the opera was a hit, modern critics point out that it hardly disguises anti-Semitic themes of an Aryan hero triumphing over a coded inferior race. This is partly why the opera, and Wagner himself, captivated a young Adolf Hitler, who wrote of visiting Wagner's widow at their cottage, standing in Wagner's bedroom, and suddenly being struck by the idea of reviving the German Empire. So were there supernatural forces pulling the strings of one of the worst villains of all time? Was it aliens? Probably not. The fact is, all Germans loved the original Parsifal story. Loved it. It was even a hit movie in 1922, so Hitler taking a liking to this story wasn't exactly the most hipster thing he could have done. Heinrich Himmler was also beholden to the tale, but more specifically the part where maybe the Holy Grail was a real thing? And he was not alone in this theory. Enter a tragic gentleman by the name of Otto Rahn. Rahn was an archaeologist and a leading scholar on Arthurian lore, and since that sort of thing was all the rage with the Nazis, they elevated him to a celebrity status. Rahn hypothesized that the Grail could be found once its castle of residence, which in the texts is translated as Munzelweich, could be located. While Ron did take a majority of his theories from the fables, he did actually attempt to find basis in historical fact. According to him, the Grail didn't necessarily make it to Britain, or at least did not end up there permanently. It was inherited during the Crusades by the Knights Templar, who kept it safe until the Catholic Church turned on them. From there, it ended up in the custodianship of a sect of Christians who lived in the Pyrenees Mountains and called themselves the Cathars. The Cathars were a revivalist movement that believed in Christian Gnosticism, something I'm not going to get into because it's incredibly dense. Basically, it's a really bizarre but really fascinating offshoot of ancient Christianity, kind of like Catholicism meets the Matrix. Naturally, the Catholic Church was not a fan of a new religion taking off on a strategic border between several countries and had the Cathars massacred in the Albigensian Crusade inside their mountain fortress called Montegur. We're not sure the exact year this happened, but historians estimate that it was around 1320. We do, however, know the date of the massacre, March 16th, mostly because people thought that the date was forever cursed, much like how the Templar massacre on Friday the 13th brought about that famous superstition. And this is where things get sexy. Those who survived the massacre and passed on the story to future generations believe that a few of the Cathars managed to flee the fortress with an unknown treasure. Some believe this treasure was just important sacred texts. 
and others think it was none else but the Holy Grail. This was good enough for Otto Rahn, who thought, hmm, Montsegur, Munselvesh, same diff, and decided that the Grail had to be sequestered in the elaborate cave systems and catacombs around the mountainside fortress. Otto journeyed to the Pyrenees and crashed at a local hotel, his base of operations from which he would go out exploring. His expedition was not entirely fruitless, as he did discover a cave he dubbed the Bethlehem Cave, and an alcove shaped like a five-pointed star that he thought might be where Grail rituals were held. Unfortunately, Ron ran out of funds and had no choice but to return to Germany. So Heinrich Himmler finds out about Ron's expedition and cannot contain his enthusiasm. Of course, Himmler is grill crazy and wants a powerful artifact to win the war, and possibly overthrow Hitler, though that's never been historically confirmed. He offers Otto a thousand marks a month if he can just continue his quest as well as write a book detailing his accounts. And it's at this point that Himmler pretty much goes off the deep end. He proclaims that he is the reincarnation of Germany's first king, Heinrich I, solely because both of their names were Heinrich, and that's totally how reincarnation works. He also decides that he's going to combine pagan and Aryan beliefs and form an official state religion led by the SS, namely him, and rule the world from his creepy castle, which, as a reminder, he actually lived in. Hitler was either cool with all of this, or was just too busy losing a war to really pay attention to what his crazy best buddy was doing, but this is probably the point in at least six alternate universe sci-fi stories where Himmler kills Hitler with the Spear of Destiny and it's up to a band of determined magicians to stop him. The truth actually is not that far off the mark, as Himmler does actually dictate his orders to Ron from Castle Devilsburg, and starts to name the chambers of his castle after key players from the Tales of King Arthur, all in anticipation of the Grail's imminent arrival. But there was a big problem here, and that problem was that Ron was gay and half-Jewish, which was mm, not ideal at the time. Ron thought he could skirt by on his good graces alone, plus finding the grail for Himmler, which he also sincerely wanted, purely from an archaeological perspective. Eventually, Himmler conscripted him into the SS. Ron reluctantly played along and was forced to add various bits of anti-Semitic propaganda to his reports. Otto Ron realized too late that he was in over his head and attempted to keep a low profile, far from Himmler's suspicions. He did this mostly by continuing his research abroad, searching pagan and ancient sites as far as Iceland. With enough distance from Germany and the Nazis finally enacting the final solution, Ron realized too late in the game that he was doomed if he didn't turn up Himmler's grail on the double. In 1937, a frustrated and weary Himmler suddenly realized, wow, this Otto guy is totes gay and kind of a Jew, and stripped Ron of his rank, sending him off to be a guard at the concentration camp of Dachau. Having spent most of his academic career steeped in fairy tales and lore, Ron was suddenly forced with the very real brutality of what the Nazis were doing to the Jews. The embattled archaeologist quickly became a traumatized alcoholic who attempted and failed to seek asylum in France. Finally, the SS issued strict orders for all of its officers and associates to hand over their genealogies to test if their bloodlines were up to Aryan standard. Knowing he was doomed and seeing what might await him at a death camp, 
Ron headed to the foot of the Alps with a bottle of scotch and a handful of sleeping pills and froze himself to death. He died on the 16th of March, 1939, the anniversary of the death of the Cathars at Monsegur. The Nazis either were oblivious to the reasons behind Ron's suicide or decided to save face and cover it up. They awarded Ron a posthumous promotion and high honors, lamenting the death of one of their best researchers. But Himmler, who was no doubt very confused about the whole ordeal, had just lost his top man on the grail hunt, so he decided to take matters into his own hands. In 1940, Himmler and Hitler traveled to Barcelona, Spain, to convince dictator Francisco Franco to join the Axis powers, with Himmler's ulterior motive being to uncover any potential leads on the grail. And shockingly enough, this expedition did up turning a lead. The SS researchers discovered an old Catalan folk song about a font of eternal life housed within a castle in the High Pyrenees. While Hitler was drinking mimosas and eating paella with Francisco, Himmler and his men journeyed to Montserrat Castle in the Pyrenees Mountains, believing this to be a potential resting place for the Grail. After all, Montserrat kind of sounds like Monselvesh, right? As luck would have it, a desperate Heinrich Himmler found the one German-speaking monk at the monastery, a gentleman documented as Andrew Ripple Noble. But the monk refused to lend a hand or provide Himmler with any information, cause duh, he was basically the biggest Nazi in the whole world next to Hitler. If this were Indiana Jones, Himmler would have naturally tortured Noble with a hot poker until he confessed. But since diplomacy tends to frown upon foreign heads of state waltzing in and torturing their holy men, Himmler couldn't exactly threaten him with violence. Besides, that whole Franco alliance didn't exactly pan out due to Spain being entirely divided between Allied and Axis support during the war. In the end, both Hitler and Himmler had nothing to show for their efforts besides maybe a Real Madrid t-shirt and a bag of churros. Okay. So it's 1944 and the Nazis aren't doing so hot. Himmler is at the end of his rope, so he basically lies and says that the Grail has been discovered in the Pyrenees near Montsegur, the other castle that sounds a lot like Monselvesh. Supposedly, a huge celebration is held and, noticeably, on March 16th, planes made the outline of a cross in the local sky signifying its discovery. It was all a lie, of course. But if you believe conspiracy theorists, this is the part when the Nazis retreat to their secret base in Antarctica for protection, along with the Grail. And this would have been a fine alternate ending for the Nazis, the big bads of Relic's first season, who have had their grubby hands over a good portion of the treasures we've covered over the course of our last 26 episodes. The truth is, the end of Heinrich Himmler and Adolf Hitler involved no supernatural comeuppance, no bolts of lightning, or melting faces from an uncovered arc. Their ends were decidedly more pathetic, and brought about by their own betrayals and self-surfing ambitions. As the war finally drew to a close, Hitler was running out of allies. He appointed Himmler as a general to one of his armies, a task that Himmler failed at spectacularly. At first, Hitler didn't want to admit his mistakes, as he was the one who had appointed Himmler in the first place. But after the Soviets completely trounced Himmler's army, Hitler laid the blame at his feet and sent the now delusional and shell-shocked Himmler to a sanatorium for recovery. While there, Himmler realized that Germany, as well as himself, 
we're both going to be in serious trouble in a matter of weeks, and it might be better to negotiate a truce behind Hitler's back. So he had, get this, his Swedish massage therapist reach out to the Swedish Red Cross to arrange something with the Allies. In the words of a certain fictional Templar, He chose poorly. While all of this was being done behind Hitler's back, Himmler attended the Führer's final birthday bash on April 20th, 1945. It was probably a pretty solemn affair. There, Himmler pledged his undying loyalty to Hitler, promising to stick around to the bitter end. And then almost immediately after, he went and met with the Swedes, who were like, so what's the deal with these concentration camp things we keep hearing about? To which Himmler promptly lied about killing any Jews, and then even had some of the prisoners released in secret. Probably not out of any sense of righteousness or remorse, but mostly because Himmler knew that he was literally the world's second most wanted man and needed to curry favor with whoever would save his sorry Nazi ass. On April 23rd, Himmler went to the Swedish consulate and boldly proclaimed that they should recognize him as the true leader of Germany, seeing as Hitler was most likely going to be dead within a week, which wasn't too far off the mark. Himmler then told them that he would be more than happy to hand over Germany's surrender to General Eisenhower. But here's the thing about a bunch of egomaniacs staring down the barrel of a gun. Stupid decisions are made in rapid succession, and people are thrown under the bus like it's going out of style. While Himmler was scheming with the Swedes, Hermann Göring, Hitler's other right-hand man, decided to take the more polite and direct approach and just straight up ask Hitler via telegraph if he could, you know, just assume control of the Reich. Expectedly, Hitler did not take this very well. And because you can't really send a smiley face emoji via telegraph, Hitler interpreted this request as Goering trying to stage a bold coup. And while all of this was going down, the Allies were literally banging on the doors of Berlin. Hitler's milieu was deserting him left and right, essentially streaking out of that bunker. Finally, on April 28th, Hitler was watching the nightly news and saw a BBC report broadcasting Himmler's surrender to the Allies, which was certainly news to him. According to, well, history, Hitler does not take this well. After flying into a reportedly terrifying rage, he immediately orders Himmler's arrest and takes out his anger by having one of his deserters shot. But there's nothing he can do. The Soviets reach the inner circle of Berlin first, and Hitler knows this is the end. The last days of Adolf Hitler are actually well documented for the most part. We know he spent most of his time lost in thought, staring at the diorama of his world museum, his ultimate treasure trove that would never come to fruition. The day before he completed suicide, Hitler committed his final fuck you. He wrote in his will that Himmler and Goering were both traitors to the party and ordered the next in line to strip them of all ranks and accolades. He appointed his Grand Admiral Lark Donitz as his rightful successor to the Nazi party. Apparently, Himmler, who had already appointed himself as the new Fuhrer, had a similar idea. He traveled to the city of Flensburg to meet Donitz and offer him a position as his new right hand. But then Donitz was like, gotcha, bitch, produced fresh documentation straight from the Fuhrer's writing desk, letting Himmler know that he was basically now nothing, nobody. 
he was to be offered no shelter and no privileges. And when the Allies eventually turned up, he would swiftly be handed over without question. Dismissed of his ability to bargain and barter with the Allies, Himmler was effectively doomed. Though he tried to flee, on the 21st of May, Heinrich Himmler was captured at an Allied checkpoint and sent off to officials for a mandatory medical examination. Suspiciously, Himmler did not lie about who he was. He was brought before a Dr. Wells, and when the doctor attempted to open Himmler's mouth, the former Nazi suddenly pulled away. Before the doctor could force him to cooperate, Himmler fell off the exam table and onto the floor. Within 15 minutes, Heinrich Himmler was dead from the hidden cyanide capsule he'd bitten into, unbeknownst to his captors. Almost right away, the Allies buried him nearby in an unmarked grave, the location of which remains, most deservedly, unknown. In the end, Himmler, Hitler, and the Nazis got exactly what they were looking for. Immortality, in a sense. They would forever be remembered as the 20th century's worst examples of humanity, their crimes and atrocities committed to history. As for the whereabouts and existence of the Holy Grail, well, believe it or not, there's actually a more conclusive answer to that question. If you've read Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, or the book that influenced it, The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, you may have stumbled upon the totally bonkers theory that the Grail wasn't a physical object, but a metaphor for the bloodlines of Jesus Christ, its family members protected and guarded in secrecy over the last two millennia. I shouldn't have to tell you that this is nonsense. While I am not qualified or interested in entertaining a debate over whether or not Jesus had a wife and children, the fact is, even if there was a Christ-like lineage, it would have been long diluted among hundreds of branching generations. It's been 2,000 years. Come on. So where does that leave an actual vessel used by Christ during the Last Supper? Supernatural powers or no? Like I said, the Grail is never really identified in the New Testament. Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned attending to Christ's body post-crucifixion, but that's just washing and then dressing it. Nobody ever mentions him ever laying his hands on any sort of goblet or vessel. But with all of that said, there actually is a pretty solid candidate for the grail that exists out there in the world. In one of the many Percival myth variations, the castle of the Fisher King is actually invisible, cloaked by an enchantment. At face value, this just sounds like a supernatural plot device, until you realize that the castle in question might actually be a fortress built into a mountainside, thereby rendering it invisible, and not the traditional towers and ramparts one might associate with a castle. And this castle was not in England after all, but Spain, specifically in the town of Santa Cruz de las Heros in the province of Huesca. There, the monastery of San Juan de la Pena is carved into the overhanging cliff above, rendering it essentially unseeable until one approaches it directly. It is a castle associated with several famous kings of Spain, some who are interred in this crypt, and the monastery is still associated with the many legends of knights and heroes. The story goes that the Holy Grail was sent here for protection during the Crusades, possibly by way of Jerusalem. Now you may think, gee, that's a long time. Whatever this chalice or goblet was probably isn't even around anymore. And you'd be half right, because there really is a cup made of gold and agate that at first glance one would assume is the grail in question. 
But if you've seen The Last Crusade, then you know that the cup you're looking for is actually the least decorated of the bunch. Jesus wasn't a rich man, but a carpenter, and all that. To find the real grail, or what is possibly the real grail, you actually have to look just underneath the stem of the golden goblet. The actual grail is the small, upturned, chalcedony-carved bowl the goblet officially rests on. It has been dated from anywhere between the 4th century to the 1st century. Now, granted, that's a 400-year margin, but it surprisingly does place it within the right time period. Maybe. The grail is also occasionally used by popes during official religious ceremonies. Sadly, nobody can attest to its supernatural powers, and wherever it came from. This is a mystery that will probably never be answered. Sometime in the 20th century, probably due to that whole World War II thing, the Catholic Church had the grail move from San Juan de la Pena to Iglesia Catedral Basilica Metropolitana de la Asuncion de Nuestra Señora de Valencia, or St. Mary's Cathedral for short. It is on public display, behind bulletproof class, that is, and out of Nazi reach. For now. So, wait, does that mean that Himmler was on the right track after all? Well, yes, somewhat. It's likely that the monks at Montserrat knew the real whereabouts of the Grail. In fact, their monastery is popularly believed to be its secret resting place. But much like a certain rugged, whip-cracking adventurer, it only took one individual to stand up to one of the world's most evil and deranged man and simply say, nah. Granted, it was an extraordinarily bold move, but it paid off, as the Grail never managed to fall into Nazi hands. And this Andrew Noble? Not exactly a household name. The history books don't really mention how one humble monk stood up to the world's second biggest Nazi. But the guy did it. A simple person, living a simple life, who could have just as easily been you or me, was asked to commit just one act to satisfy the ambitions of an evil tyrant, and he flat out refused. History is full of evil men, and some women, whose greed and ambition is directly responsible not just for the deaths of innocents, but the loss of some of humankind's greatest works of art. Ultimately, gold and jewels and priceless paintings are all quite meaningless. It's simply the value we assign to them that drives people, such as Heinrich Himmler, to violent obsession. Those are the all-too-real villains. But the heroes aren't men in fedoras snatching idols out of Mayan ruins. They're the women and men who are taking up the pen and writing history. They are those who devote their lives to securing stolen works of art. They are anthropologists and archaeologists, art historians and museum docents, whose tireless efforts keep the public educated and our civilization's greatest assets secured. Without them, who knows what other amazing works that we take for granted, that we can still visit to this day, might have just become another lost treasure and another story. Relic is written, produced, and narrated by me, Maxwell. If you like this season and want to choose wisely, you can leave a review and rating in iTunes, as well as keep the show alive by donating to our Patreon or PayPal. We also now have a Zazzle store for an ever-evolving selection of merchandise. 
You can connect to Relic on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. Our email is LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. Our main page, where you can find our Patreon, PayPal, store, whatever, is relic.blueberry.net. That's blueberry without the E's. The adventure continues next season, hopefully, with the theme and schedule for season two to be announced later in the summer, also hopefully. But fear not, treasure hunters, there will be new roundtable-style episodes at least once or twice a month till then, covering some other broader topics than just lost treasure. So stay tuned for those. The adventure continues. And Parzifal, the literary character, were both on a hunt for a powerful treasure. Oh, ghosts!